Let's take a few minutes just to pray. Father, we just come before you tonight to glorify your name. Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we just glorify the name that is above every name, that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that you are Lord. God, take this moment. We just want to draw near to you. Lord, we want to know you. Lord, we want to exalt you. Fill us, Holy Spirit, God, from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. Search us and know us. Purify us. Refine us. Lord, take out the draw of our hearts. Lord, just let us see your image in us. Let us love like you love and be filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That love, that joy, that peace, that patience, that kindness, that meekness, that self-control. God, that we want to follow you, walk in step with the Holy Spirit. In these last days, we pray for our nation. Oh, God, pray for our political leaders. We pray for our police and those in law enforcement. God, we pray against racism and hatred and division. Lord, in the, the anarchy that's rising in our country and lawlessness and the crime, Lord, we pray for peace, that the Prince of Peace would be established in the hearts of mankind. God, that you're the only way that a nation has peace. God, establish your church. Build up your church, oh God. Let us be a lighthouse in these dark days that people would be drawn to the love of God, drawn to the peace of God, drawn to the hope that's in Jesus Christ. Let us have a message, God, that is attractive to people in these days, that everything that we do, Lord, would glorify you. Everything that we say would lead men to declare there is a God, that He loves us, that He sent His Son to die for us. Lord, and we just exalt you. Lord, take tonight, take this Sunday, every time we meet together, oh God, that your presence would be magnified in our midst. God, show up again in signs and wonders in these last days like you promised, oh God. We hold you to your promise, oh God, that you said you pour out your spirit in these last days. God, show up mightily and in power, God. We come with expectation, Lord, to see your son, Jesus Christ, revealed in these days, oh God. And we thank you for all that you're going to do. Hallelujah, Lord God. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. 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 You have a Bible. Turn with me to John chapter 2. We are in a series called So You May Believe. Uh, we are going through John by theme. And for those of you who have been here, uh, this will be a continuation. And if not, it's a good standalone message each week. But I encourage you to listen online to the other ones. So that we've got talked about John the person. We've talked about the historical literary background of John and why that's important and how John contextualized his gospel. We've talked about um, the seven uh, statements, or sorry, the seven witnesses that declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We've talked about the Logos, the first chapter, the prologue of John. And so we're going to talk more today, and today's all going to be about the seven significant signs that John purposefully puts in his gospel to declare that Jesus is who he says he is. Okay, so there's seven significant Witness, seven witnesses, which we've done. There are seven significant signs, and there are seven statements. We're going to hit all of those, and then we're going to get into the passion narrative. Uh, in John, miracles are referred to as signs, whereas if you look in the other Gospels, they're referred to as mighty acts of power. Now, why do you think John doesn't say these were powerful acts or mighty acts of power? Why do you think John specifically, those of you who have been in here for a little while, knowing what John's goal is, why does he say there are signs? Any thoughts there? Signs. Why would you use the word signs and not miracles or mighty acts of power? Any ideas? Remember, what are we presenting? We are presenting a case for Christ. This whole narrative, this whole book, the Gospel of John, is about a case for Christ. It is a, uh, the, the world is putting Jesus on trial, but God has really put the world on trial. So these are signs. These are going to be evidences, okay? Proof texts that together are going to show that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's not for John, just about a bunch of miracles. In fact, we said it last time that John uh, said that if, if we had written books about all the things that Jesus Christ had ever done, the world could not even contain all the stories that would have to be told about what he did in just those three years of ministry. That's pretty powerful. That means Jesus did a lot more than we could even know in these books. So John specifically picked seven signs, seven miracles to tell you and I a story. 
to tell us something, and it's going to go into next week the uh, seven I am statements as well. So let's look at this. Of the seven signs, only five, uh, five are found only in John's gospel. And the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded by all the gospel writers. And the walking on the water appears also in Matthew and Mark. Okay, so isn't that kind of interesting? So only five of these are only from John's perspective. Remember we said that they're Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. They are basically someone saw a car accident and three different people said how it happened. One talked about the driver, one talked about the car, one talked about the bicycle that pulled out in front of him. They told the same story, but it's three different perspectives, but it's all the same accident. John is like the guy who was in the skyscraper looking down. He sees it in a whole nother perspective. It's again the same story, but he's going to tell it in a different way than all three people on the ground. Does that make sense? So they're all the same story. It's all Jesus, but they're three guys on the ground telling it in the same, pretty much the same exact way, 90% the same. And then there's John. He's kind of got this whole other realm. He's, he's up there in the clouds with Jesus, okay? All right, so that's John. So let's turn to John chapter 2, verse 1. And the first sign is Jesus turning water into wine. Anybody familiar with this story? John chapter 2, verse 1. John chapter 2, verse 1. And let's read a piece, of, a little bit of it, and then we're going to kind of talk about it. So we're just going to highlight these seven signs just so you can kind of have a narrative. And uh, the goal, I think, if we have anything to get through at the end of the day, is just to have much more confidence uh, in who Jesus is. Okay, so it's the third day. There's a wedding in Cana. Now, Jesus hasn't started anything yet. He just, begat, he just got his uh, first converts and started his first ministry, public ministry just talking about the kingdom of God. But he's with his mother... And Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding. Now, Cana Galilee is not too far from his hometown. And they go there. Probably Mary had some kind of invite, and they invited the kids. And, uh, you know, it's like, hey, you plus 12. <laughs> you know, like, wouldn't you want to be those people? You know, you, you have somebody invite to the wedding and say, oh, yeah, it's plus one. I got 12. Come on in, guys. You know, but anyhow, they go. Maybe that's why there was no wine. But they ran out of wine. And the mother, who is awesome, you know, she, Mary, of course, she's concerned about what would look because in ancient culture, hospitality was a big deal, and you really needed to be that, that Martha Stewart of every event. That's just kind of how it worked, right? Uh, so if you were out of wine, it didn't look very good, and it was a, kind of a, a shaming thing, okay? You were really poor. So she's concerned about them. So he says, but she says, Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman... What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, that is not a slight on women from Jesus. And obviously, that's not how we would say it to our... If you say that to your mama today, John, it, right? You're going to get slapped or something. Woman, don't get in the kitchen. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's, what he does, though, is he's distancing himself from his role specifically as, I'm just Mary's son. He's uh, separating himself to talk about his ministry... And it's not something of disrespect that we would, we would talk about today. But she, G, Mary approaches Jesus, not just as her son, but as her Savior, one author says. And her reply, Jesus' reply is not as son, but as her Lord. So that's interesting that Jesus got this double role. I'm, I, she's my mama, but I'm also the guy who made the universe. Okay, think about that weirdness, Right? I know you birthed me, you raised me, you guided me, you gave me my animal crackers, you wiped my face when I was slobbery, but I also made you. Think about that, right? I have also was there and set the stars and the mountains in place. So, woman, it's not my time, okay? I know you're my mama, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm in control of this whole world, <laughs> so this, let me do what I got to do. Okay, so anyway, there's... We can't, don't take that on yourself and say you can talk to your mama that way. All right, so Jesus goes on, and it's the arrival. It says, it's not my hour yet. There's a certain time Jesus is going to start his ministry. There's a certain time he's going to be on the cross. And he doesn't want to blow his cover, and he doesn't, here's his humility, he doesn't want to steal the spotlight of the bride and the groom. 
So what's on the side is off to the side, there are water pots, large, huge gallons uh, uh, of, of water, six stone jars uh, off to the side. And so those were in, uh, in the Pharisees' time. Remember, if you read into the Gospels, you're going to read about them doing ceremonial washings and cleansing. And Jesus says, you wash the outside of the plate, but on the inside, you're dirty. Right? Remember that story? It's because the Pharisees had added so many rules onto the law, onto the, the Old Testament, to stay so far away from uh, ritual impurity. And so there are these six huge uh, water jars. Uh, I'm going to go off my head because I can't remember. Like 30 gallons each. I mean, a lot. They're huge, right? Big things. For the whole party to come in, like in COVID, you have to hand sanitize and wash yourself. Like they would come in, wash everything, wash the dishes. Everything would be washed ceremonially clean. And Jesus says, well, go take some of that water or take those, fill those up all the way to the top with water. And what happens? Let's look. He says, now there were six stone water parts set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus says to them, fill the water pots with water. So six water pots times up to 30 gallons each. That's a lot of water. And he says to them, draw out some now and take it to the head waiter or the steward. They took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, it had become wine and they did not where it come from. So they tasted it. And he says to the, the owner of the, the, the head waiter, says to the bridegroom, he says, you guys, uh, normally people wait and give the good stuff at the beginning. Uh, and, you know, at the end, so nobody's going to be, no, nobody's going to know, or at the beginning, and then after a while, they dilute it and dilute it and dilute it, and you don't, they, they're so drunk, they don't know that they're not getting good stuff anymore. So you give the good stuff first, then you water it down after a while, so it lasts longer. But he says, you guys, you gave the best for the last. You saved the best for the end. Now, isn't that just like God? He saves the best for last. And what Jesus is doing here is something very significant. He changes water into wine. And we can get stuck on the whole, does Jesus believe in alcohol thing? That's not at all what this, believe, this is about. It's what does the wine often symbolize in the New Testament? It symbolizes the blood. And what Jesus, even in an accident, and that's not an accident, but even in uh, this moment that Mary presents to him, he takes something that was symbolic of an old ritual traditionalism added to the law, this Jewish ceremonial cleansing, and what man by his own works thought would cleanse him and make him right with God. Jesus takes it and symbolically turns it into his own blood. And so from the first miracle that Jesus will do in John, it will be that I'm going to make old things new. And although it's been good so far, when I make it, I save the best for last. Isn't that good? So, all right, let's go on here a little bit further. So Jesus is going to take this ceremonial law, and he's going to make it new. Jesus does everything spectacular. And what you're going to see is the new covenant is going to be that much better than the old covenant. And as we go through these next, these next few signs, watch this, because... He's going to do the same thing with every single miracle in John. He's going to take a lame man who was sick for 38 years, make him better. But then he's going to take a blind man that was blind from birth and make him better. He's going to take Lazarus, who's actually dead. He's even going to wait an extra day, and he's going to make him living. So he just John, the way he organizes it, is going to progress it. Everything Jesus does, he pushes it to the limit. When nobody else could do anything, he can do it better. All right? So Jesus fills up the depleted resources of Judaism. And John wants you to know, and this, each, each one of these has a point. He says, he's pointing you and I, as you read this, to the source that God is the source of all of our future blessings. Okay, so that's number one. Uh, water into wine. He, okay, let's do the next one. Cleansing of the temple. We're going to skip that one. That one's a debated one. We don't have time to go into that one today. But number two is... Healing the nobleman's son. Look in John chapter 4, verse 46. John chapter 4, verse 46. So he comes again to Cana of Galilee. So he's come back. He's made a trip. And he finds a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Beth and I actually got to go to this temple where this guy uh, worked um, when we got to visit Israel in 2011. 
And he heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee. He went to him and was imploring him to come down, heal my son. He's sick. And he's at the point of death. And Jesus says to him, unless you people see signs, he's talking about the Jews, see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And the royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus says to him, go, your son lives. And he believed. That's key. Remember, John has key words. Abide, light, darkness. We uh, go back to our second lesson. Everything he does, he's got specific words and says, so this book is written so you may believe. And this guy believed the word of God that Jesus spoke. Remember, who's Jesus? The Logos, the spoken word of God. Jesus spoke. When Jesus spoke, he's the same speaker that said, let there be light for John. And so when Jesus speaks, it's not just somebody on the side corner or some preacher down the road speaking. This guy who spoke light into darkness, matter from nothingness, says, go, your son's healed. That's pretty powerful. That's what John wants you to read into that. Don't just read this as some guy. This is the living word of God saying, your son lives. All right? Okay, let's go on. John 4. He says, and as he's going down, his slaves met him. He said, his son was living. And he inquired, when was this that he got better? And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour. And he knew that's the exact same time Jesus told me my son was better. He had a couple-day journey. They caught up to him. And they said, your son's better. He said, well, what time did he get better? Oh, yesterday at like 1 o'clock. Yesterday at 1 o'clock is when Jesus said he was healed. So, again, we have a testimony there. All right, so this something interesting on this sign is that Jesus heals the boy long distance, right? He's God. John wants you to know this guy, whatever he says goes. He doesn't even have to be there. Remember, we've got stories in the New Testament about handkerchiefs getting put under people's uh, pillows that people prayed for. Peter uh, going by a shadow. It's not even a physical touch. It's not even, he's not even in the same room. He's at two towns away. And Jesus says, it is so, and it's done. So, He's, he wants to, John begins to point to us that Jesus is the giver of life. And this kind of makes you think about that. Remember the story in Matthew and Luke about that Gentile centurion? He's a captain, and he's also got a slave who's sick, and Jesus heals him at a distance. So apparently this happened multiple times that Jesus can say, let's pray about it. Okay, yep, it's, it's done. Go back home. Check and see if I'm not saying this, this is true. So while the Jews... He says, you are lacking in faith. Here's a man who believed because of his word. And for John, it's not about the miracle. The miracle is great. The miracle points to that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But for John, he's wanting them to understand. Jesus kind of criticized you for only relying on signs. And here's this royal official who may have worked for Herod Antipas, which is Herod the Great's son, the same guy who would persecute Jesus when he was on going to the cross. Remember, they would dress him in royal and they'd go mock him before he goes to trial. This guy may be working for that guy. This guy may have been a Gentile or a Roman. And he says, you guys want signs. And here's a guy over here who believes my word. And that's what he's going for. Do we believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do we believe he is the... Word of God. That's what John wants us to get. So let's go on to the next one. Number three, <clears throat> healing of the lame man, John 5. John 5. John 5, 1 through 15. We're going to come back and talk about these at the end here. So we kind of go through them a little fast. I want to make sure we kind of get it all in. You're always looking for signs. That's right. That's good. You're always looking for signs, and here's seven significant signs you're not getting. That's good. All right. He, uh, okay, so after these things, there's a feast. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and we've talked about this last week. Uh, but there's a, uh, a pool by the sheep gate called Bethsaida, all right? And they have five porticos. 
there's a guy there, and there's a bunch of sick people waiting for the angel to move the water. Some kind of tradition, some legend, some some folklore. It may have happened, but it seems that it, it happened enough at some point in time that people actually believed it was going to happen. And it says the angel of the Lord went down to certain seasons to stir the waters, and whoever got in first, the legend said, you would get in. And there was a man there, ill for 38 years. People passed him all the time to go into the temple. It's a very popular gate. A uh, very popular way is a very not pretty gate, not very where people, you didn't want to be there. It's, I mean, leprosies and all kinds of nasty stuff and sheep and everything. So there's a guy there in disease, 38 years, long time in that condition. And Jesus comes to him and asks this rhetorical question, which seems odd. says, do you wish to get well? The man answers, sir, I've got nobody to put me in the pool. Everybody always beats me to the water. So Jesus says, there's that logos again, he says, he speaks, because he is the word. And the word says to him, Jesus, the word of God says to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath day. All right. They interrogate the man who gave you permission to carry your pallet. You're missing the forest through the trees here. You're, who, there's a miracle gone. Who gave you permission to work on the Sabbath, to labor? Who gave you permission to break the Ten Commandments, which wasn't even in the law to carry a pallet? But let's move on. Religion kind of makes things where they're not. And he says, who is this man? Pick up your pallet. He said, I don't know. He slipped away in the crowd. Jesus founds, finds him later in the temple in verse 14 and says to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more so that nothing worse happens to you. He went away and told people it was Jesus. And for this reason, Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. And he would tell them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Basically, my God works on the Sabbath because of your sin, is what he was saying, and he's my father, equating himself with God as a, the son of God. They didn't like that, obviously, and, and there's a lot of reasons. But let's look at this and what this one passage really means. Let's get into that. This one's very important. Okay, so it's one of the three feasts. Every Jew would go up at Passover, the Feast of Booths, or Pentecost, all right? They would go up at one of those three feasts. So Jesus goes up, as he's supposed to, He's going into the temple, goes past this pool, uh, and it's the pool really, it means the pool of mercy or pity. But unfortunately, in their religious system, nobody's got any pity on these guys, all right? So they're waiting for some kind of miracle. And sometimes when we are sick, we get this mindset that you just kind of surrender to the sickness, right? You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes people use these panhandlings as a way of living. And so Jesus comes to the guy, and he wants to know the man's intentions. Are you here to make money? Are you here because you've surrendered to your illness? Or are you here because you really want to get well? Because that matters. Because it's going to determine where the man's faith is and where the man's heart is, right? You can't, there's no point in healing someone who wants to be sick. There's a whole sermon in there. Okay. But there's no point in helping someone who likes to live on the system. Just going to leave that there as well. So go on. So he says, what are you here for? Well, obviously, I want to get well. He says, yes, I would like to get well, but no one will put me in the pool. Now he says, be well. Get up. Take up your mat. And he commands him to walk. I know what Jesus knew what was going to happen. This began, this moment began the journey to the cross. Now, Jesus is always walking to the cross, but this moment, it's called the Sabbath controversy, where he began to poke that wound of the Pharisees. He began to kind of, what do you call it, pour salt on in the wound. He began to do things that would in, uh, kind of start that flame in their heart and get that point to where he's saying, I'm going to come against your traditions and everything that you think you think about God. And he says... He takes this initiative, he heals him by the word, he doesn't do it by a pool, and he says, let's look at your relationship with God. And at the end of it, Jesus is not so much concerned about the man's healing 
physically. But look what he's asking. How's your heart? What are you here for? He sees how the man responds. And then he says something. And look in verse 14. Jesus' words, kind of interesting. He says, stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. Now, does that say that the man sinned and that's why he was sick? No, we're going to talk about that in a second. But what he's saying is he's concerned not just about our physical, but our spiritual needs. And we can't, I don't have the time to even to go into all that theology, but it's to say for Jesus is to say, don't go back to where you were, that you have new life now. Take advantage of it. Go for God. If you use the healing I've given you for evil and you start committing crimes and you use this blessing I've given you, God might take that blessing away from you and you might be worse off than you ever were. How many people believe that's true? Uh, I've seen people who have got a healing before uh, in church and then go and fall into sin and that sickness or that cancer come back. I'm just saying that's true. My own, I know people that happen to. So he's saying... I've healed you, but it's so that you can pursue God. If you go pursue something else, something worse may happen to you, all right? So it takes place on a Sabbath. The Jews begin to fight him. And so the law doesn't prevent, I was going to say this, the law of Moses did not prevent a practice of carrying your mat. It was their interpretation. Remember in Matthew, he says, uh, uh, you guys neglect the more important matters and you trade it for these weaker things. You trade justice and mercy and faithfulness for all these rituals and so there's a trigger here all right now what does it chapter 5 verse 18 say chapter for this reason therefore the jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the sabbath which he wasn't because he's lord of the sabbath but also was calling god his own father making himself equal with god which was also true okay So now we get into the gritty stuff. All right, feeding the multitude. John 6, verses 1. We'll paraphrase this as we, so we can have time for the last one. Okay, so now we go on. Jesus has been teaching, and man, people are following him. In fact, he teaches so much, so well, so many signs and wonders happening. People walk around the entire lake. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm tired. You guys are tired. Let's go take a, let's go take a vacation. Not really, but let's go take a break. They take the sea, if the Sea of Galilee is this big, projector slide they're up the north at Capernaum let's go around this side of the lake to to over here and kind of the desert but it was February at the time probably because there was grass on the ground so they're going in the spring they say let's go get alone guess what 5,000 men plus women and children show up so that's 10 12 15,000 I don't know a lot of people they follow him Jesus is moved with compassion of how hungry these people were how needy they were they would walk into the desert without tents and nourishment and proper clothing or hygiene or whatever. They were just movement of people, just a wonder of God, drawing them to him. Isn't that true how that, I mean, Jesus is attractive. I mean, you're, if your heart is open and hungry, there's something inside of you that says, there's something about this man. I maybe don't know what it is. But I'm hungry for it. I'm praying for that for our nation again. Man, people just don't even know why they're attracted to him, but they're just drawn because he's the giver of life. And so he comes, they come over there, and he comes to his disciples, and he tests them in this because he knew, the Bible says he knew what he was going to do. And he tells one of his disciples, How, let's, let's feed these people. And what them says, there's not enough money. Even 200 days wages would not be enough to feed these people. And then I think Andrew says, he says, well, there's this little boy over here with some fish and some, some loaves of bread, you know, some of that pita bread that, that the Jews like so much. And he says, but, you know, what's that? So Jesus takes it. He prays over it, blesses it. This is one of the only miracles that's in the others. And he begins to, they just begin to distribute it. Actually, in kindergarten, I, I got to participate in that play. That was one of my first stage moments. We got to be Jesus in the five loaves and this little fake foam fish and we spread it around. And I just remember that moment. Jesus spreads it out, and then what happens? They have so much left over, 12 baskets full, that provide for the disciples and their family as they're on mission with Jesus. There's a sermon in there that we don't have time to go into. If you put Jesus' mission first, he's going to provide all your needs, all right? So what does that mean? You're going to talk, we're going to talk next week about he says, I am the bread of life. And it begins to show you something here. You think about Elisha and 2 Kings. There's a moment with Elisha, 
that somebody comes with some bread and there's like a hundred troops and they only have 20 pieces of bread. And the servant says, or, here, I got some bread. And Elisha says, uh, give it to the troops. He says, well, that's not going to feed a hundred men. And he says, just do it. The word of God will make it multiply. And it does. So you see that Jesus now is performing miracles, even like Elisha, which is one of the messianic prophecies that would happen. Another Elisha and Elijah, and somebody else like Moses, Elijah, and Elisha would come and do great things. Think about the manna moment with the children of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus is in the same Judean wilderness across uh, the Sea of Galilee. He's actually across the Jordan River with this. So he's in the same place Moses was when they were trusting in God and the manna from heaven would be miraculously multiplied to feed the people. And here they have this same manna from heaven moment. And Jesus would lead to teach them that I am what you're looking for. I am the bread of life. And every time he says I am, it is the same word God would use to say I am that I am. Isn't that good? He is the I am, all right? So John wants you to point to that. He says that, so now you've got Jesus is the one who can take the old ceremonial system and make it into new things through his blood. He's the guy who can heal at a distance. He's the giver of life. Now John says he's the guy who is feeding the multitudes with his own body, that he is the life-giving bread from heaven. And if you even go further, John in his book, Revelation Uh, he's going to point to something called the Messianic banquet or that last marriage supper of the Lamb. And in this moment, here you have this Messiah, the bridegroom, feeding his people like he will in the future. It's pretty cool. In fact, you know, if you read the book of Revelation, I I just said this at the beginning, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. In John's gospel, there are seven signs, Seven significant statements and seven witnesses. See that? Three sets of seven in both John's gospel and John's revelation. Okay, that's just a freebie. All right. Mind blown. All right, here we go. Okay, so this is the way John writes. Okay, so let's go on. So Jesus becomes the bread of life. Look in John 9. Who is he? Or, sorry, John six sixteen. Let's just go down one more. There's, I skipped one. <clears throat> Next is he walks on water. All right, John six sixteen. We know this story. It's very popular. We've even said it. So as soon as he gets done uh, uh, telling them that he's the bread of life, he goes off to pray. In the middle of the night, he's praying. He sends his disciples across the boat. We actually talked about this the other week, uh, last Sunday, I think, in our prayer meeting. He, he goes and he says, now go across the Sea of Galilee. This is the second time he's going to have them do this. The first time... He was in the boat asleep. The second time, he's walking on the waves, all right? So they're on the sea. A storm comes. The Gospels say that they, they were halfway across, about three miles, four miles in. Storm is at night. They can't see anything. They're panicking. They're freaking out. The wind is going against them. They're rowing forward, but they're not going anywhere. And they're struggling with all their might. And Jesus is testing them to see if they've learned anything. You ever feel like God just tests you to see if you learned anything sometimes? All right, I just showed you that I am the bread of heaven. I can take a couple fish and feed ten to 15,000 people. And then I tell you to get in the boat and go across. Don't you think I know a storm's coming? Don't you think I know that you're going to need some help here? Did you cry out to me? No. You panicked. You had fear. You thought you were going to die. Why would I put you in a boat and make you die in the middle of a lake? So he shows up walking on the water, says he intended to pass them by. I guess he had compassion on their poor foolish selves. And they see him and they think, oh, my gosh, it's a ghost. And they were trusting in themselves Versus trusting in them. And we know this famous story. Peter says, well, if it is you, beg me to come out to you. Or actually it says, command me to come out to you. And Jesus says, come. And he comes and he gets almost to Jesus. And he looks down and looks around. He falls. Jesus grabs him, picks him up and says, why did you doubt? You're a man of little faith. What's wrong with you? And they get back in the boat. And the gospel says, as soon as they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And they were immediately at the other side. Can you imagine? It's like one of those Star Trek, you know, it's like light speed. You just all of a sudden, you're here, you're in the middle of the lake, and 
how in the world did we get to this side of the lake? Now, I don't know about you. I think I would believe at that point. I don't, I mean, come on, just be real. What, how did we get here? It's not like when you're driving home and you don't know how you got home. This is like we were in the middle of the lake one minute. The storm was tossing. We saw a ghost. Peter's walking on water. He's in the boat. As soon as he's in the boat, we're on the shore. How are you going to explain that to somebody? Right? But here's what I love. As they're walking on the... As he walks on the water and they cry out, it is a ghost. He says... I'm going to just read it because I don't want to mess it up. As he's walking on the water... Verse 20, chapter 6, but he's, they're drawing near the boat. They are frightened, fearful of the storm he put them in. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. But what he says in Aramaic, it is the I am, do not be afraid. That's preaching points right there. When Jesus shows up, he doesn't just say, hey, it's me. He says, it is the I am, don't be afraid. That's good. Man, when you're in the middle of the storm of life, God can show up and just say, it's the I am is here. I am that I am. I am God. I am the one who saves you in the middle of a storm. All right, I'm going to preach on another day. Okay, so they were a little overconfident in themselves. Jesus wants them to trust in the Lord more. And the storm is that examination after the lesson. And when Jesus says, the I am is here, don't fear It's the same thing that God said to Moses in the burning bush. I am that I am. So John tells you, not only can he multiply fishes and loaves and feed the 5,000 and the whole world with his own body, he can not only replace the Jewish ceremonial system with his own very blood and takes what was a dead man's ritual, makes it better than it ever was, new things from old things, old wineskins pass away, it's new wineskins, it's new wine, now, doesn't he just heal at a distance? He has the power of the forces of life and death with his very words. Now this guy calms the raging seas. He's got power over the forces of nature. And you're still doubting that this guy is Messiah, the Son of God. All right? You don't believe? Let me. So this is John's writing this to this new generation of Christians Uh, Like we've said before, John's writing to a new generation of Christians who have never met the apostles, who don't have the same faith that early first-hand account people had. And he's encouraging them. These stories are true. They're only one generation away. I, John, myself have seen and testified of these things. So he says, let me tell you another one, because seven is a perfect number. So I'm going to give you perfectly seven signs that declare he is the Son of God. You won't deny it. Healing the blind man in John 9. All right, let's look at this one. John 9. In John 8, Jesus had said, I am the light of the world. And now he's going to show you why and how that's true. This point right here is now getting us to the climax of Jesus versus his opponents. This is the sixth sign, and it's healing of a blind man, and it's going to verify Jesus' claim I am the light of the world. If I'm the light of the world, I can speak light into darkness. He's going to do it in a, in a literal way. So, okay, it's just like the pool that we had uh, at Bethesda in chapter 5. Now Jesus is going to heal a man born blind by the pool of Siloam. So look in 9, John 9. All right. So Jesus comes to this pool. He passed by, sees a man born blind. So, remember how I said it just keeps getting better with Jesus? Before, it was a man who was lame just for 38 years. That was a long time. But now let's pick on, let's find somebody who's worse off. Let's find a blind man from birth. So maybe somebody can say, well, 38 years, maybe he got better. Now, okay, let's pick a guy born from birth. He's been bad. All right, so born blind. They say, Jesus, whose, whose fault is it that this guy's been blind? Because in the Jewish system, sin... Uh, resulted in punishment. Remember the story of Job, where they asked Job's friends, asked Job, what'd you do wrong to make God punish you like this? And Job says, I've been innocent. God is my witness. I've been innocent. I'm, this is because God's testing me, and, and then we'd find out that that's the truth. Jesus says, 
This is so, this is not to blame, uh, but it's for the fame, okay? It's not for blame, it's for fame. It's for the glory of God. So you don't always get to know, Jesus was basically telling them, you don't always know the reason for suffering. But in any moment of suffering, God can show up and get the glory. So don't be blaming people if they're sick. That's what he's saying. So let's look for God's opportunities. So he says, out of obedience, he says this man, he says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So he said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, applied it to the eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the word of God says to him, go wash to a pool called Scent. So he goes away, wash, comes back seeing. People who knew him as a beggar said, hey, isn't this the guy who was here to beg? Others are saying, no, I don't know. And so still others are saying, he looks like him. Well, I don't think he is the guy. And, they, and he says, no, but I am the one. And they're saying, well, how does your eyes get open? And the man, uh, they said, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go wash. And I went away and washed, received sight. They said, where'd he go? He said, I don't know. So they bring him to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Say, this is the guy born blind. Again, it was on the Sabbath day. Uh-oh, Jesus, what are you doing? Doing things on the Sabbath day again. They say, how did he receive his sight? Verse 16, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man can't be from God. This is important because we're going to do this case here. We're kind of running out of time, but we're going to get this case. Because this can't be the guy from, from God. How can, a man, how can a sinner who does bad things on the Sabbath do such signs? They begin divided. What do you say about him? He, they asked the guy because he opened your eyes. He says, well, he's got to be a prophet. But the Jews didn't believe him. They called his parents. His parents say, well, we don't want to get in trouble with the Pharisees. So you ask him. I don't know. He asked, but he was born from birth. He was blind. So the second time, verse 24, they called the man. Give some glory to God. We know this guy's a sinner. He's like, whether I love this. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind... Now I see. That guy was a redneck right there. I don't know anything we're talking about, but I just know this. I was blind. Now I see. Now here he's even better. They asked him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I already told you and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to be one of his disciples too, do you? I mean, man, you got to love that guy. I want to meet him. And they, com- they condemn him that you're a disciple, we're a disciple of Moses, we don't know where he's from, and we know that God doesn't hear sinners. And from this moment, they begin to seek the death of Jesus. They, they put him out, they actually kick this guy out of the church. Jesus shows up with this guy again and says, Do you believe in the Son of Man, which would be the prophesied Messiah? And they say, he says, Yeah, I believe, who is he? And he says, But you have both seen him now. Look at that. You see me. You see me. You see me. He's declaring the, the faith that that man had to be obedient. He's declaring what happened. Though you were darkness and blind, now you see. You're seeing the light. Me. I am the light of the world. You see now. Me. The light of the world. I'm talking to you. All right? So, okay. So, what's happening here in this moment? This, this, minute, this one thing that John picks out is so very important. It also is unconventional. Just like that other pool, he, he, he tells the guy to get up and walk. This guy, he does something very unconventional. He spits on the man's, on the ground, puts something on his eyes. It reminds me of that story about Naaman having to go and wash in the muddy Jordan. Seven. It, sometimes God does weird things just to, make, to see if you'll believe and obey. So he goes and he does that, tells him to go wash, and John is really wanting you to say, this guy, Jesus, is bringing light into darkness. Just like in John chapter 1, in the beginning, uh, you know, there was this dark void from Genesis 1 and John 1. And there was just God, and God was in the beginning. And then God says, let there be light. That's that same Jesus, the Logos. And now that Jesus, the Logos, the Word of God, comes to this man's darkness, and he says, go do this. The Word of God says, go do this. And man, light is apparent to him now, okay? So he proves to be the light of the world. But then there's this case, all right? There's this case, and, and I, I, I'm going to try to deliver it as best as I can with the time that we have. This guy becomes a gradual disciple of Jesus Christ in this very passage. Let's l- watch this. Look at these verses. Gradually, this guy becomes a disciple, and this kind of can go with how your friends can become a disciple too. At the very beginning, he's blind, 
but he becomes a disciple when he confesses Jesus openly. But look what he does in verse 9. He says, I don't know this man. He's recognizing him as a man. And then in verse 17, he says, well, maybe he's a prophet. And then in verse 33, he's a man of God. And then when Jesus really shows up to him and reveals who he really is in verse 35, he recognizes him as the Son of Man and Lord. So think about that. Jesus does something in your life, or there's an awareness of him, but he says, maybe he's a man. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's a man of God. But then Jesus shows up and says, I'm the guy. I'm the light. And he says, you're my Lord. You're the Son of Man. I believe in you. See that progression of faith even in this one story? And I think that's true for unbelief even in our world today. Sometimes there's not just this one moment and everything's good. Sometimes we have our friends, our coworkers, there's this progression as God begins to open their eyes. But there's this little case here on this Sabbath controversy. The council begins to investigate him, and they have two premises. One is before you see the evidence, called a priori, and the one is uh, after you see the evidence, would be post, uh, you know, where is it? Yeah, a posteriori, okay? So one is deduction, one is induction. So deduction is, let's reason this out. Let's presume the case. And here's their pre- presumption. Number one is, if a man breaks the Sabbath law, therefore a man can't be of God. Ergo, Jesus broke the Sabbath law. Jesus is not a man of God. See the formula there? If a man breaks the Sabbath, that man cannot be of God. Ergo, Jesus broke the Sabbath, so Jesus must not be a man of God. But then now we have the guys show up and defend Christ in this little court case here. And he says this way. Well, anybody who does miraculous signs can't be a sinner. Ergo, Jesus does miraculous signs. Jesus must be a man of God. Whose logic is wrong here? You say someone sins on the Sabbath and they can't be a man of God. But you also believe if you do miraculous signs, you must be a man of God. So who's Jesus? What's going on here? And that's where we get to this Sabbath controversy. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus commands healing. And you've made the law of God into traditions of man. You've made church going not about God going. You've made it about you and your works and your righteousness and your efforts and you're going to church and you're giving and your tithes and your dress code and all the things you, 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 you. But he's like, what about my work and my glory? And what about this man? I love that where we get the words amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. That's from that verse right there in verse 25. All right? So he says, Lord, I believe. And that gets us to the last one. Number seven, last one. The climax of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John is in John chapter 11. This will be the last thing we talk about until we get to the cross. All right? This miracle brings the final clash between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. It's the seventh sign, and it's where he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he's going to tell us he's the resurrection and the life. Now, I'm not going to go into all of it because we're going to talk about it next week when we talk about all of the I am statements. But only three times in all four Gospels is anyone raised from the dead. Think about that. This is Jesus, but only three times. And four Gospels is anybody raised from the dead. And it's Jairus' daughter, the widow's son at Nain, and Lazarus. All right? They're all prophesied events. They're all, they all have uh, resurrection stuff in the Old Testament to foreshadow them. Okay? So this one is not uh, in the synoptics, but it is the most spectacular. It's the most powerful of the seven signs, and it foreshadows Christ's own resurrection. So I'm just going to paraphrase. Jesus sees, here's his friend, good friend. Uh, One of his best friends, Lazarus, is falling ill. He's the brother of Mary and Martha, who are sisters. Remember the whole story about Mary and Martha and working, and one's a busybody and one's at Jesus' feet? Same one. Their brother is Lazarus. Mary's the one who will anoint Jesus with oil later on. They find out that he's ill. Jesus says, well, my my buddy's sick. And they say, oh, maybe he'll get better. Let's go see him. He's like, no, no, no. Uh, it's not going to work out that way, basically. And, and finally, they get the word, he's, he's dead. Jesus says, well, he's, he, our friend Lazarus is asleep. We're like, well, maybe he'll wake up. No, no, he's dead. Okay. 
the normal Jewish ceremony goes like this. If you die, they bury you within that day because they didn't have the embalming stuff that we do, and they wanted the dead in the ground. But the funeral would go on for seven days. Customary weeping and lamenting and people in your house with the good potluck. Okay, whatever. They would go on that way. Jesus waits to the fourth day. Why? There was a superstition that said the spirit of people hovered around the bodies. We have our superstitions here in Louisiana, right? There was a superstition that said the spirit hovered around the body, and maybe, maybe the, you want somebody listening outside that grave. Somebody might be knocking, let me out, let me out. They didn't have doctors back then. Sometimes that happened, right? Oh, he's not really dead. He's in a coma or something. So that's always a bad thing, right? So maybe he walks out of the tomb one day, and it's a miracle, and it's a ghost, and he's a zombie, whatever. So three days, but after three days, they either died or they suffocated, and they're, they're not coming out, okay? So Jesus waits to the fourth day. Remember how I said at the very beginning, Jesus waits, and he does things spectacular? He always waits to that last moment. Maybe he pushes it over the edge a little bit just to show out and show that everything with God is better, all right? Jesus waits to the fourth day. He shows up. He has this interaction that we'll talk about next week with Martha and Mary. And he says, Mary, don't worry. Martha, don't worry. Your brother's going to be resurrected. Martha says, I know, but I know he'll be resurrected in the last days, Jesus. But he says, no, 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 man, girl, you don't know. I am. I am. I am the I am. I am the I am that I am that I am. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. All right? I am. That's what he's saying. I'm God. I'm God. I'm not just some dude over here doing miracles for a party trick. I'm God. I am. So he says, I am. I am the resurrection. So there's four steps. By the way, don't forget also Jesus wept. John's very key to put that in. And here's why. Because remember I said at the very beginning of his gospel, John shows us he's this God, Logos, cosmic deity coming down in human form. But when he dies on the cross, he's a friend of sinners. He's the good father. He's a good shepherd. He's a servant that lays his life down, or the shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He's a servant that washes their feet. He's in the mire and the muck with us. He's in the dirt. He's bleeding for us. So he takes this cosmic God. And he brings him down to our level to be a man on the cross for us. So right before he goes to the cross, you see Jesus weeping. For someone he knows, he's about to raise. Think about that. I know where he's at. I'm actually in heaven talking to him right now, by the way, while I'm on the earth. I don't know how that works. But it's like, Jesus, wait, I'm coming back down. I just talked to you upstairs. What did you bring me back down here for? I mean, like, you know, there's this... I don't get it. I don't know. But he's with God in heaven. and He's coming back to God on the earth. It's just crazy. So Jesus goes. He weeps with them. He, you know, it's like you see somebody crying on TV. Sometimes you get those little tears in your eyes, guys. You can admit it. It's all right. You see that puppy dog or something on the TV, and they want you to give $100 a month for this dog. There's something in you that cries with them. All right, anyway. But he weeps with them, and there's four steps. He has an emotional expression. Uh, he says that Jews are showing their failure to understand Jesus' tears. They're thinking, oh, he's sad, but he knows what's about to happen. Jesus challenges their faith. He speaks to Martha's faith. Don't you believe in me? Jesus begins to pray, but he prays out loud. But he says, God, I'm not praying this out loud for my own benefit. We know each other. I'm praying for their benefit. And he's telling them, this is for you. So you may believe who I am on the resurrection and life. And he commands, he speaks. And again, this is the voice that is going to, at the last day, speak to every tomb in the entire world. And it's going to release the graves are going to pop up. And this same voice speaks and says, Lazarus. Somebody has said one time, if he hadn't specified Lazarus, everybody in the grave would have woke up. He specifies. <laughs> Let me get the address right, just in case I get the wrong guy. Lazarus, get out of here. Come forth. And he comes out and bound and, and they let him out. And some people believe and some people don't. Doesn't that speak to where we are, even as a society today? 
Sometimes you can give seven significant signs. You can give seven witnesses. You can hear a guy. You can see a guy take you from the middle of a, a boat to the edge in a millisecond. You can see a guy walk on water. You can see a multiply fish. You can hear all the stories and know it all. And still because of the sin and the coldness and the blindness of your heart, you are lost in the darkness of this world. Blinded, the Bible says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelieving hearts. And in that moment, we see that dichotomy. And later, look in John 12, verse 9. I'm going to wrap it up with this. John 12, verse 9. <clears throat> the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But... The chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus would be one of the only few people to die twice. On account of Lazarus, people are coming to Jesus. And now Jesus is really, his ministry, before, remember, he used to say, don't tell nobody, don't tell nobody. Now, he allows them. Now there's mass... People actually want to make him king. There's this big roar of people coming. But they want to make him king because of, of what he wants, but because of what they want. And we would get to that story in Palm Sunday, and he would come over that hill and look at them, and he would weep over Jerusalem. And he says, you don't understand. You, I've wanted to bring you like a, a mother chick wants to grab their, ch their chicks and shelter your... But you don't understand. You don't know the hour of your visitation. You don't know the Prince of Peace is here. You don't understand what I'm trying to do. You don't see. All right? So the, the, from that moment on, that is the mark. Lazarus is raised. His ministry is public. He's done the biggest sign in the history of the world. He's brought someone back from the dead on the fourth day, declared that they're walking. Everyone knows it. And even though they know it, they hate him for it. The same is going to happen in these days. Just because someone knows it doesn't mean they still won't hate you. Doesn't so they won't hate the message. Because why? Because Jesus was revealing the sin in their own heart. It's not always about him being true. Sometimes that truth will call out that sin, and men won't want to surrender that. And that's why men hate the gospel. And remember in John chapter 1, it says the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness didn't, didn't comprehend it. <clears throat> But it also says that men love the darkness, for their heart was evil. And some people would come to him and be children of God, but not all would. Some people, you're going to see come to Jesus, and some people, you're going to see hate Jesus. And that's this moment for him. And in this... Uh, John begins to tell you that he's the resurrection and the life. And that will lead you to the cross, which will be the next, the next activity that Jesus comes into Jerusalem and goes through that Passover. And we're going to spend an extensive amount of time the next coming weeks on the Passover. I'm sorry, in the Passion story and uh, the crucifixion scene. But let's pause there. We'll, we'll end, that, end on that today. But I want you to think about this and, uh, as we close. What does it take for you to believe in the Word of God? We got all traditions. We all have, we're like Pharisees. We have traditions we've added to, ways we like God to move, ways we want, believe God should move, could move, things we don't like really. If we be honest with ourselves, there's things that God tells us we may not like. Sometimes God shines things on our heart that we're not comfortable with. But some of these people, like that man at the pool, he says, do you really want to get well? I think that's a good examination. Do you really want him for who he is? And when he says, go wash or pick up your mat or do something unusual, do you believe it? Do you, do, you, do you believe his word for who he is, not who you want him to be? Because that's the clash that will get him to the cross. They wanted a king. They wanted a savior. But they wanted him on their own terms. And I want us to pray, not, let's, not be, let's not be that way. I want him for who he is, because he's lovely, he's beautiful, he's wonderful, he's mighty, he's powerful.
He's God's only begotten Son, the Messiah. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us tonight? Seven significant signs that testify that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, tonight I pray in Jesus' name that we'd examine our hearts to see you for who you are. You are the bread of life. You are the living one. You are one who calms the storms of life. You are the I am that you are. You are the I am that I am, God, that you reveal yourself as one who cares for the lowly, who walks to those uh, those smelly sheep gates, who speaks to those who are oppressed and abused by the system of man. You speak to those and you bring light in the midst of darkness. You bring hope in the midst of despair. You bring healing in the midst of pain. And so, God, we see you like that man. I don't know what is going on, but I know that I was once blind, but now I see and we see him to be the light of the world. Lord, help us to see Jesus for who he is. Lord, I pray you would reveal yourself to us, even those of us who've been with you for many years. God, that like Nicodemus, sometimes we don't understand through our own religiousness, but God, that we would see you, God, with clear vision in 2020 and the days that we live, Lord, as terrors all around and division and hatred and strife. May we have a clear picture of a mighty miracle worker, of a powerful wonder maker, one who set the stars in motion, the one who calms and moves the sea by his very voice, the Logos, the word of God who speaks light in the middle of the darkness, who raises the dead with a single word. And when he says it, there's going to be a trump that's going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we who are alive and remain, we're going to be gathered together in the air and you're going to set your foot on the Mount of Olives. And God, when the nations of men come against you, you will defeat them with a single word from your mouth. God, it will be because you are the I am. And so, Lord, we declare you over our lives tonight. We pray you over our children and our children's children. God, that we have a revelation of Jesus Christ and how powerful you are in these last days. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.